So one of the rough parts of being in this transition season that we talk about all the time uh, for both my family uh, and where we're living as we're in temporary housing right now, but and my office as well, uh, since we're still looking for a permanent home for Trilogy, keep praying church uh, as we look for that permanent home for Trilogy. One of the rough parts is my books. Uh, I have a lot of books. Uh, I have a pretty extensive library. Someday I'm going to learn to read and then I will really be dangerous. But for now, I just have a lot of books and uh, I, it makes me look smart. But one of the books I have in my library is called Unchristian. And this book, Unchristian, it analyzes an extensive study that was done by the Barna Research Group, where they this Barna Research set out to compare the lives that Christians live to the lives that non-Christians live to see what the actual differences are. And I'm typically, I'm pretty skeptical about studies like this because I always want to know who are they counting as Christians in this study, right? Uh, people, just people who self-identify as a Christian because we have a lot of people in our country who say, well, I'm not Jewish, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not an atheist, so I must be a Christian, right? Um, or my parents dragged me to Sunday school at the Presbyterian church in town where I grew up, so I'm a Presbyterian. Uh, and I'm sure most of you would agree that just those two uh, cases that I mentioned aren't actual Christ followers just because those two things are true. Uh, but in this survey, they did not count you as a Christian unless you could articulate the gospel and you affirmed your belief in it. So you had to have at least a passing understanding of what it means to be saved and then go on record as saying you have made the decision to follow Jesus. So that's a little higher threshold than some of the other studies uh, and other surveys that I've seen done. On top of that, the survey was completely anonymous. Nobody had to identify themselves so that people would be honest about their lifestyles and the choices that they make. So here's what they found in this survey. Christians cuss less in public. Now they had to specify, not so much less in private, just in public or around Nana, you know, they, they cuss less. Uh, secondly, Christians give a little bit more to the poor. Uh, they are less likely to recycle than non-Christians because, you know, it's all just going to burn anyway, right? So what's the point? Uh, Christians give more money to religious nonprofits. Well, that makes sense. And Christians, on the whole, buy fewer lottery tickets than non-Christians do. So that's all super encouraging, right? I mean, we're really putting Jesus on display in these areas uh, that they noticed a difference. But the study found that Christians are just as likely as non-Christians to visit a pornographic website, no difference. Christians are just as likely as non-Christians to get drunk, to do illegal drugs, or to take prescription medications that were not prescribed to them. Christians were just as likely as non-Christians to be willing to lie to get out of a difficult situation, to have intentionally done something to get back at someone within the last 30 days, revenge to have said an unkind thing about someone behind their backs in the last 30 days, absolutely no difference in behavior. And I wish I could say that these results completely shock me, but after 25 years of ministry and working with broken people, I could have come to pretty much the same conclusion without spending millions of dollars on a research project. 
The study also found that 84% of non-Christians who were surveyed, 84%, which is a really high number, said they knew at least one believer personally. But only 15% thought that person's lifestyle was significantly different from their own. So all these people who knew someone who was a Christian said their life didn't differ from theirs in any noticeable way. One non-Christian in the survey, because there's a, you know, where they can provide some feedback, described his perception of conservative Christians in this way. Illogical empire builders prone to violence and people who cannot generally live peacefully with those who don't believe what they believe. Ouch. I mean, is this really what Jesus had in mind when he died to bring new life to his followers? Is this the rich and more abundant life he came to bring us? That they would know we were his disciples because we cussed less around grandma and bought less lottery tickets. Is that how they would know that we're disciples of Jesus? John 13, 35 tells us a different story. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And today we're going to be looking at the second chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 2. And Paul's point in Romans 2 is that religion is often just this thin coat of paint spread over someone's heart. And the heart is still every bit as sinful as everyone else's. And that religion by itself is powerless to change us. It might slightly modify our behavior, but nothing deeper than that. Now, just to kind of set the table, in Romans chapter 1, Paul laid out his case for why all people need the gospel. And it was a crushing condemnation of all of humanity. Uh, he paints a, a graphic picture of the corruption of the human race. Paul, doesn't, Paul isn't known for pulling punches. And now as he opens chapter 2, he anticipates this objection that is going to come from his very religious Jewish readership here at the church in Rome. And at this point in his ministry, Paul has taught the gospel to religious Jews for 20 years. So he knows what is coming. He knows what to expect. It's kind of like when I start to tell a joke in one of my messages, you've been around long enough to know what is coming and you prepare yourself for the worst, right? You buckle up because you know it's coming. And just so you know, I'm not going to share a joke this morning. So I, I, I prayed about it and I thought I would have mercy as God has mercy on us. So no joke today. But as we read through this chapter, every time you hear the word Jew, you could substitute it for church-going Christian. Okay? The terms could be interchangeable in this chapter because Paul's focus is on religious people. That's what his focus here, and that's what he's calling out. It's just that most of his audience here happens to be religious Jews, and so that's how he addresses it. So these readers, after chapter one got finished, where he called everybody out, they would all be like, yeah, that's right, you tell them, Paul. Those Gentiles are some messed up people, all that idolatry and sexual dysfunction and societal chaos and all that stuff. And so we begin chapter two, starting with verse one. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. 
For you who judge others do these very same things. Basically, he's paraphrasing here. Hey, y'all who are shaking your heads at the people I just called out, you're part of the problem. I called y'all out as well. Your hearts are exactly the same as theirs. There is no difference here. Now, when people tell me, I hear people say, man, I love the book of Romans. When people say that, I know that they've made it through the whole thing. Or maybe just the second half. Because Romans is brutal until chapter 8. I mean, there is, there is nothing fun about the book of Romans in the first seven chapters. It is not encouraging. It is a beatdown as you read the first seven chapters of Romans. This is an all-out assault on you. It's not amen. It's oh my. All right? It just hits you hard as you read Romans. Take a look in the mirror, Paul is saying. Is your heart really any better than those people that you want to condemn? So let's jump to verses six and seven. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good. Such an important phrase, keep on doing good. That means they have a consistent habit. They have a lifestyle of doing the right thing, whether others are watching or not. They have made a regular pattern of doing right things. Continuing on, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. Now pay attention here, because there are plenty of religious people who are seeking glory, honor, and immortality. Plenty of religious people, but we need to make sure we're seeking that from the creator and not from created things here on earth. Because we all seek glory and honor from somewhere. Everybody is seeking glory and honor. Think of those two words as meaning and security. Glory and honor, meaning and security. We need to find our meaning and our purpose and our security in God and in our relationship with him, not in created things, not in earthly relationships. The source for all of that needs to come from above. Now verses 8 through 11. But he will pour out his anger and his wrath um, on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. Basically, those who, people who put their own will, their own desires ahead of God, and they seek their own glory instead of God's, even if they do it in the name of religion. And their good works are not really motivated by love for God or love for others. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. So Paul says that God sees the heart. And when he evaluates us, what counts with God is not external compliance in religion, but inward transformation from the heart. It's not those things that we do and whether we fall in line with what our religious culture teaches us or what our uh, religious practices are around us. That's not what impresses God. It's inward transition from, tran uh, transformation from the heart. And out of that, out of that heart transformation come good works. And when it's all said and done on that final day when we stand before the throne, God is going to look at the inward motivation. God's going to be looking at our hearts, not what we did, but why we did it. 
And some things we did that look good on the surface are not really going to look that good when you get down into the motives for why they were done. You know, you, you, you even have that in Jesus' teaching. He said, some will stand before me on a day and say, hey, didn't we drive out demons in your name? And did we do this? Didn't we do this? We did all these great things in your name. And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. You know, maybe there were gifts given to make ourselves look good instead of the benefit that it gave to that person. Serving opportunities that we did just to avoid feeling guilty or out of obligation instead of as an act of love and of sacrifice. You know, even our giving, we mentioned generosity earlier. We talked about that. What does what is, uh, Bible teach us? It says we shouldn't give out of compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. What, is they, what are they talking about there? The motivation behind our actions. It's that internal motivation because of the heart transformation that has happened. And the list could go on and on of right things done for the wrong reasons. Now, maybe you could ask at this point, so am I going to be judged by what I've done or by my heart motivations? Which of these is going to determine whether I get into a heaven, the things that I do or where my heart's at? The answer really is neither. Neither one of those is going to determine, not what you did or why you did it. What determines whether or not you get into heaven is what you decide about Jesus and what Jesus has already done for you. That's what's going to determine it. He gave his life for you. He made the ultimate sacrifice for all the right reasons so that you and I could be saved. So we have to make the decision then to follow him, to accept his forgiveness and to live for him, but... Then on the other side of that comes a life of following in his footsteps by following his example, by living to please him and letting his will become reality in our lives. Because here's the thing, your life is the best illustration of what you actually believe. Your life is the best illustration of what you actually believe. Faith is not just words. It's not just a proclamation. Faith is belief in action. Faith is belief that is lived out. It makes a difference. Repentance is not walking an aisle in a church or praying a prayer. Repentance is heart change. Conversion is not joining a church. It's not getting baptized. It's the Holy Spirit coming to take up residence in our heart and make us new and bring that new birth to us. And that means that when we have truly been saved, good works will always follow. When we've been saved, truly transformed, good works will always follow. We talked about the fruit of the Spirit a couple weeks ago from Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. That's exactly the kind of life that we will see when someone has truly surrendered their heart and life to Jesus. We will see that fruit. It's not optional. It's the way it is. It's the reality of someone who has made the decision to follow Jesus. The fruit is evidence of a surrendered heart. It's evidence of a surrendered heart. When Jesus comes into your life, it will make a difference. Paul teaches that we are saved by faith alone, by grace alone. But faith that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by good works. When we have saving faith, it will always come out on the other side of that in good works. Another way of thinking about that, holiness, living according to God's will and surrendering to his plan, 
is not a condition for salvation, but it is always part of salvation because it's how we live out on the other side. So here is the million dollar question that every one of us needs to answer this morning. What does your life say about your belief in or your surrender to Jesus? What does your life tell us about it? Romans 2.13, for merely listening to the law, or today we might say merely owning a Bible, doesn't make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Again, Paul makes the point, it's not reading scripture or knowing the Bible that matters. It's whether you obey it from your heart that matters. It's whether you have been transformed, whether you've been made new. Verse 16, and this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. Well, that's, that's a fun verse to read, isn't it? Our secret life is going to be judged. Nothing will remain secret. Everything will be revealed. One day God is going to expose the hearts of Jews and Gentiles alike, religious and non-religious people, and we'll see through all the religious customs, all the practices and observances, we're going to see all through all of that down to the core of who we really are. And that's probably not going to be a good day for anyone. Why? Because Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? That's the condition of the human heart. And that's what's going to be exposed. That's what God is going to reveal. And when that happens, no one will have a leg to stand on. Not one of us. Fortunately, we're not standing on our own two feet. We're standing on Jesus. We're standing on the gospel. He is our foundation. He's our atonement. He's our covering. So let's do a little exercise this morning to make this a little more personal for all of us. Some of you love taking those little quizzes on Facebook uh, that tell you what you are really like. Okay, you know those marketing schemes that are there just to get you to click and give them access to your entire profile and your whole friends list? Yep, now you know. But you also, you know, you've taken these, you know you're a Neogram number. You know which friends character you would be. Uh, you know what pet you are. You know what Disney princess you would be. And what kind of cheese you are. You know, seriously, I took that the other day. I'm a Gouda. Um, so here's a biblical quiz for you. Okay, the Ten Commandments are probably a, the best example of a starting point of where your heart stands with God. So let's do a little quiz. If you'd like, you can take out a piece of paper and write the answers down. You don't have to. Or you could just keep track in your head. For each question, your answer will be yes or no. It's pretty straightforward. There's no all of the above. It's yes or no. Okay, so what I'm going to do is read a few of the commandments this morning give you a brief explanation of how to interpret that for your life. And if you feel like you pretty consistently keep it, put yes. If not, your answer is no. Now, this is going to be a little painful. You've heard the expression, truth hurts. Yeah, that's, that's why. So number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Can you say, I have never put anything before God in my life. I have never loved or trusted or obeyed anything more than God. 
God has always been first in my thoughts, in my affections, in my actions, and worshiping him has always been the driving passion of my life. Yes or no? Commandment number three, you shall not take my name in vain. I have always held the name of God in the highest respect, never speaking it carelessly, nor have I ever trashed God's name by calling myself his follower and then not representing him well. The way I talk, act, spend money, and drive give honor to the God whose name I attach to my life and whose t-shirt I wear and bumper sticker I put on my car. Yes or no? Commandment number five, honor your parents. I have always respected and obeyed the authorities in my life and given them honor and willing obedience, whether they were watching or not. This includes my parents, my teachers, and even the IRS. Number six, you shall not kill. I have never murdered anyone. Maybe you can say this, but remember what Jesus did with this commandment in the Sermon on the Mount. You have to also be able to say, nor have I had hateful thoughts or taken the slightest pleasure in seeing harm done to another person. I've never wished harm on anyone, even when they really angered me or disagreed with me. Commandment seven, you shall not commit adultery. I have never had a sexual relationship with someone outside of a committed marriage, nor have I ever had sexual thoughts about someone I'm not married to. Commandment eight, you shall not steal. I have never taken anything that doesn't belong to me. This includes downloading illegal music, cheating in school, swiping money from your mom's purse when you were going out as a teenager. I have always respected the rights and belongings of others and have been completely honest and fair, taking only what I've earned. I have never ever taken extra Chick-fil-A sauce to stock my shelves at home, wasted my company's time checking out Facebook. I have never taken credit that didn't belong to me or let others assume good things about me that weren't true. Number nine, you shall not lie. I've never bent the truth to get out of a bad situation. I've never stretched it to make myself look better. I've never slandered anyone to make them look worse. I've always told the truth in every situation regarding every person I have ever known. And I've always fulfilled any promises that I've made. And finally, commandment 10. I have never been greedy for something that wasn't mine, nor have I been jealous of the abilities, looks, position, or possessions of others. I have always rejoiced with others in what they have, glad that they have it even when I don't. I have never complained about what God has provided for me and have always been thankful and fully content with what I have and where I am in life. So there you go. Do we need to trade papers with someone near us to see how we did? No, I, I don't think anyone needs to do that. I think most of our answers are probably going to line up with one another. And here's what I want to now continue in Romans 2 uh, verses 17, 19, and 22. You who call yourselves Jews, religious folk, are relying on God's law. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. If you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it is wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? So when you look down into the motives of your heart, there's a pretty high likelihood we're in some areas living the exact way we tell others not to. You say you don't steal, but there are plenty of examples of taking more than what belongs to you. We say we don't commit adultery, but our thought life isn't different than anyone else's. And the section on idolatry here, as Paul writes to the church in Rome, is figurative here. He doesn't mean these religious people dress up as vigilantes and, at night and break into churches. 
He's doing with this commandment here what Jesus did to others uh, as he taught. He extends the command beyond outward obedience and drives down to inward motivation here. You say not to worship idols, Paul says, but you know that idol worship is more than the physical act of bowing down to a statue. Okay? The reason pagan people bow down to idols is because they think this statue is going to bring them prosperity and improve their lives. It will make their lives better. And you may not bow down to the statue, but you worship prosperity just like they do. You crave money and respect and power just as much as they do. You could see it by how much you worry about money, seek more of it, refuse to be generous with it, and how much you complain to God when he doesn't give you all you think you need or you deserve. You could even go so far as to say, you're using God in pursuit of your idol, trying to get God to satisfy an idol in your life. And what happens is you use religion to get things from God instead of getting more of God. Romans 2, 23 and 24. You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. All the Gentiles, all of the non-religious people, the unchurched, if you will, can see that under this thin layer of religion, you have the same corrupt heart as everyone else. And if anything, religion has made you worse. Religiosity is this strange disease. When you have it, it makes everyone else around you want to vomit. <laughs> That's how religiosity affects people. Here are some signs of a religious spirit, according to Paul. So, you know, as we read through this chapter and we see this whole chapter deals with religious spirit, this religiosity and just having this form of godliness, but denying its power to quote another verse from the New Testament. Uh, these are some of the signs of a religious spirit, according to Paul. A person with a religious spirit is the following things. He's smug, you walk around with this subtle but prideful attitude. I have everything together. I don't have the problems that other people have because I just do a better job than they do. Ask yourself this. When you hear about your friend's kid acting up in school, is your gut response, my kid would never do that, so I must be doing something right? Or is your response, man, parenting is rough. My kid has problems too, and thank God for his grace, because if not for him, we'd all be in trouble. Okay, so we're smug. Secondly, overly sensitive. Ask yourself this, when someone confronts you about your sin, do you get defensive? Do you start mentally listing all the problems they have and what right do they have to call me out? Or do you receive the correction with grace and legitimately ask God to help you hear it and to fix the problem? Next, judgmental. You need to find others. You have this drive to find others who are worse than you so you can feel good about yourself. So you are really critical of others, always finding fault. You're the kind of person who can point out something wrong in just about everyone you meet. And when you see genuine fault or weakness in someone else, you're not really compassionate, you're condemning. Next, hypocritical. You want to learn concepts of truth more than we want to be confronted by concepts of truth. The Bible was not written for our information. It was written for our transformation. 
The word of God is supposed to transform our lives, not just inform us about things. A real follower of Jesus finds the Bible living and active. When they hear it, when we read it, we are convicted, comforted, thrilled, disturbed, melted, slammed down, or lifted up, but it changes us. It transforms us. Hypocrisy is hearing the truth and proclaiming the truth, but not living the truth and allowing it to transform your life. Finally, the last sign of somebody who has this religious spirit is they're insecure. You're always worried, am I good enough? Do others consider me a good person? Does God consider me a good person? You don't know because there's no foundation for your spiritual standing with God because it's based in just this thin layer of religiosity. Any religious system that doesn't begin with a deep experience of God's grace that he demonstrated at the cross will leave you smug, overly sensitive, judgmental, hypocritical, and insecure. Now, you may be sitting there saying, man, that sounds like most of the Christians I see on Facebook. Maybe, but in saying that, you're being equally smug and judgmental, so watch it. But the end result is that people far from God run away from the truth. They dislike the God that we claim to represent because all these religious people are living in the way I just described. And here's what we have to realize. It's only genuine faith that can inspire genuine curiosity in other people, which leads to a genuine conversion. You've got to have a genuine faith to be able to be a witness as Jesus has called us to live. If we're going to go into all the world making disciples, our faith has to be genuine. We've got to be a true follower of Jesus if we're going to follow him into the world and invite others to follow us. To be able to say, as Paul did in 1 Corinthians 11, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Our faith has to be genuine for that. Romans 2.25, the Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you're no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. So circumcision was an outward sign of the Jewish covenant. Okay, that's why it existed. Today, we could replace that terminology in this passage, replace circumcision with baptism. Baptism is an outward picture of inward transformation the new covenant that we have with God. It's demonstrated outwardly through baptism. Your body gets washed with water, the symbol of the cleansing of your heart, going under the water, coming back up. It's like you are being buried and brought back to life, a symbol of what is happening inside you. You are reborn into this new spiritual life. So we could say you got baptized, your body was dipped in water, but does your heart show signs of being cleansed? Is it just a ceremony or is it an outward symbol of genuine inward transformation? You take communion, but are you showing the inward effects of the presence of Christ in you, or are you just taking part in a religious ritual? Does your life show evidence of Jesus living on the inside? Maybe you've heard this, this phrase before, but if we put you on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence from your private conversations and inward thoughts to convict you? Would there be enough evidence? If your best friend couldn't stand up 
to, and provide compelling evidence from what you do when you're away from the church to prove that you are born again. If your mom couldn't stand up and explain to us how she knows you are born again by observing your behavior at home and how you treat your family, it might be because you have never truly surrendered your life to Jesus. Finally, verses 28 and 29. For you are not a true Jew or a Christian just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. And once again, updating it to, to modern, you are not a true Christian just because you were born to Christian parents or because you've been water baptized. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And here's the takeaway I want us to all have. And it's incredibly relevant here in North Texas where we all live. This is a unique place, church, in that almost everyone has some background or experience in church, unless they're transplants from another part of the country. But Native North Texans, let me tell you, almost everybody has some sort of background or experience in church. You've heard me joke that when I moved here, I discovered that even the atheists were Southern Baptist. And the problem is people think that they've got church figured out. They know what it is. They know what it's all about. They know the routine. And in the middle of religious routine, they've missed the dynamic, transformational new story that God wanted to write in their life. And Paul is telling us we need to be on guard against religious inoculation. We need to be on guard against religious inoculation. What is inoculation? It's giving you a dead version of something so if you are exposed to the real thing, you won't catch it. It's giving you a dead version of something so if you're exposed to the real thing, you won't catch it. That's exactly what the enemy wants to do to you and to me. He wants to give us a dead version of faith so that when we encounter the real thing, we won't respond. Oh, we know, I've, I've seen that church thing. I don't, need to, I don't need that in my life. It is possible to experience Christianity without experiencing Christ. It's possible to know the Bible, but not have it make any internal difference. Religion cannot change you. Only the gospel can change you. And that gospel has to be embraced and treasured and take root deep in your heart. So that's the question for each one of us today. And I want you to know, this is not a correctional sermon. I don't think trilogy is filled with a bunch of religious people with dead faith. That's not why I'm preaching this message. But it is a question every one of us needs to always be asking ourselves. This is a great checkpoint chapter in the Bible. Because we are all susceptible to having a religious spirit. The question is, have I embraced the gospel in my heart? Not have you been baptized, not have you joined the church, or not even have you prayed this prayer. But has the gospel traveled that 18 inches between your head and your heart? Has the gospel made that journey? Because here's the thing, church. Too many people will miss heaven by 18 inches. Way too many people will miss heaven by 18 inches because the gospel, the truth of God's love, never made the journey from here to here. God's word to us today is not condemnation, it's mercy. 
It's the promise that whether we're religious or non-religious, whether we're running from God or whether we're indifferent to him, whether we have church figured out or we don't know a hymn from a haiku, Jesus died for you. Jesus loves you and he wants to transform your life. You just have to let him. And if church for you is just a routine, if church for you is just something you participate in because you're supposed to, I want you to know this morning that there is more than that. There's so much more than that. It goes so much more beneath just a surface relationship or a surface awareness of who God is and what his story is and what he wants for you. There is a truth that needs to go from here to here and embed itself, lodge itself in your heart where true life transformation can take place. You see, the only way for religious or irreligious people to be saved is to admit our need of grace and our need of a new heart and receive that by turning away from our old way of life and our false sense of goodness and ask God for mercy and believe that he can forgive all of our sins immediately and give us a new heart. That is the gospel. That is the good news. That is not religion, church. That is faith. That's the new story that God wants each one of us to experience. And maybe you're sitting here today and you've discovered that you never have. You're, you're a church attender, but you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe church is something you do, but Jesus is not someone you have relationship with. I want you to know you can today. It can be so much more than just sitting through a mildly interesting message on Sunday mornings. It could be so much more than just having a cup of coffee and a donut while you talk to people that you haven't seen for seven days. Guys, this is supposed to transform every area of your life and it can and it does when you embrace the gospel. So we're gonna pray to close our time together today. And if, if you're here listening to this or maybe you're watching it later, and you're, you're sitting there and there's an awareness that is rising within you and the Holy Spirit is, is doing something in your heart right now and you have an awareness that what you have and what you thought you had isn't real. I want you to know that you can make it real today by praying and inviting Jesus to be the Lord of your life. And I wanna pray for you this morning as we close our service. And as I pray for you, if you're here and you wanna acknowledge God as your savior today, and ask him to transform your life, would you just do that and just whisper a prayer on your own while I'm praying and say, Jesus, come into my life. I want this to be real, not religious. I want to live for you, not just know about you. Just in your own words, just something, whisper a prayer and ask God to change your life. And he will. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning and we thank you that what we have is so much more than religion. That God, this is a relationship with the creator of everything that is. With you, Jesus. The one who made the most selfless act that has ever been done in surrendering your perfect life for our broken ones. And Jesus, today, as we, as we think about what we do and who we are and why we do it. And we think about our in, internal motivations for why we do what we do. God, there may be some of us who have had, there's some of us who maybe have to tweak some things and Holy Spirit, you're speaking to us and you're pointing some things out. 
But there's also some who've maybe had an awareness level increase to realize, I don't have a relationship with Jesus the way we've talked about today. And God, I pray that as they pray right now, and as they invite you to be their Savior and their Lord, and they ask you to forgive them, they ask you to transform their lives, God, would you do that? Come in and clean house. God, make them new. God, let it, let it be so much more than just a, a religious experience. God, light transformation is taking place as people pray. And I thank you for that, God. That there is an immediate sense of, of forgiveness and a weight that has been lifted. And God, I pray that their foundation would not be in what they think they know, but in who they know. God, we thank you for what you're doing right now. God, let the same be true for every one of us today. God, reaffirm that relationship in each one of our hearts today. We thank you for life-changing relationship through the gospel. The good news that Jesus, you gave your life for me. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.